most storytelling cultures on earth have had some sort of trickster form be a significant character in their mythology or their liturgy or whatever whatever else um, you want to call their um, their texts or their oral traditions and um, when you start to look at them as a whole they're really fascinating um, so whether you are in the you know most people know Loki or Hermes in the European traditions but then uh, in the Native American there's Raven and Glooskap Africa has Anansi and Legba um, you start to see uh, a common pattern of of and not immoral, but an amoral agent. Everyone's fighting a battle that you can't see. My name is James, and welcome to Focus For You. This show is about motivating all of us to better understand that harmony surrounds all people, that hopes and lifelong dreams are very real and very reachable. Having faith in oneself to choose a path that is solely yours to follow, all in the struggle to become the best version of you. Hey everybody, welcome back. Welcome back. Glad that you're here. Glad you pressed play today. If you're new to the show, welcome to Focus For You. This is exciting for me. So today's show is with Andres and I was referred to Andres by Grace Beeler, who I've done a show with previously. If you haven't had a chance to listen, please do. Now, Andres was somebody that I had no idea, had no nothing prior to uh, sitting down and chatting with him in a coffee shop uh, pre-production. And we had a great conversation. We had great conversations. We talked about vastly different things from religion to raising children to uh, social ideas to things that I didn't think was going to ever come up in the conversation. But boy, am I glad that it did. So when I had a chance to formulate some questions and put some ideas together, I figured out that we are two sides of the same coin. All right, guys, welcome back. Uh, I've, um, I'm sitting in the library again with another guest, and I met this guest through my first North Carolina friend, Gracie Beeler, and she said that I needed to sit here and talk with this gentleman. Uh, we had a chance to sit down in a coffee shop, and we started talking about family, ethnicity, and a bunch of different things. And before we know it, it was an hour later, and we were really enjoying having a conversation. So Andres has been gracious enough to sit down and take time with me. Thank you, Andres. Thanks for having me, James. This is awesome. Um, prior to our meeting, I we hadn't had a conversation, right? I think the only time we talked is your dog came back to the croquet court there yes, yes. At, at Flush Fest and we had like a little exchange. With yeah, them. we had a little exchange and yeah, that was it. But uh, prior to that, we hadn't even touched the surface of what we touched. Nope. Um, and I uh, I couldn't, I, I always like to kind of think ahead when I, when I come with a guest and uh, and questions that I always like to ask with everybody is like, like where, where did you start? Like, how has all of this come together? How'd you end up in uh, Hillsboro, if you will, you know? Um, so my wife and I and my kids had been in New York. Um, my wife and I had been in New York for about 18 years. 
and we lived in a one bedroom in Queens and uh, my wife and I both artists doing our thing but there came a moment at which you know we we had a Murphy bed you know what these are oh where they pull out of the wall you pull out of the so that's what you see in movies like particularly when you see them like you know mid 20th century movies it's like they pull them out of the wall now they have to be built and they are the most expensive things I've ever I never bought anything so expensive in my life uh, I remember going uh, when I was in uh, Mexico a few years back with a with a buddy of mine uh, vacation and they were showing these um, these these uh, like houses or places you go to rent during vacation and each room had a Murphy bed so it allowed you to have this one giant kind of open loft area yeah, and then yeah. you pull down the Murphy bed yeah. and there it was and I was for the price that they wanted for this like this room I had I was like it was outrageous because now that you're telling me it's the Murphy bed it makes a lot of sense yeah yeah but uh, you know we just needed to go you needed to go we needed to go so you decided so we had all these dreams we had like a West Coast dream and we had a Denver dream and we had Vermont and Miami which are where our parents are and um, my buddy Sam Gates uh, who teaches at uh down here in Chapel Hill, um, we had a conversation. He said, come check this area out, man. And I was like, all right. That's what I've been telling people. Just come, come check this area yeah. out. Like, yeah. let, 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 uh, just see what it is. Yeah. 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 And my wife has written for tech for a long time. Um, and uh, I was getting my master's. I knew that I would be wanting to do some teaching eventually. So, yeah, we checked it out. And we really liked it. Um, we didn't know about Hillsborough yet. We only knew, you know, we knew Durham and Raleigh and Chapel Hill. Agreed. Then, Same. Yeah. Same. So then we land in Chapel Hill and then everybody just, you know, every time we kind of said a little bit about ourselves, everybody would be like, you need to go to Hillsborough. You need to go to Hillsborough. You need to go to Hillsborough. Ah. And after the third or fourth time of hearing it, we're like, all right, we've got to go to Hillsborough. We're going to go check it out. Yeah. So uh, you, you come to Hillsborough. How long have you been in Hillsborough? Uh, just over a year. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not that far behind you. No. So I've, I've been in for just under a year, and uh, I I really have kind of grown. This this town has kind of grown on me. Yeah. And so have the people, and doing all of that, you you kind of think about the journey, like you you've been sharing with me, and um, you know we find time to do other things in life, so. I had asked you at the top, one of the questions I asked is like, how do you find time to be selfish? You just mentioned that you have a wife and uh, two young children. And where does your time to start doing your craft come into place with all of that? At five in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. Starts early? Either early or late. Um, no, there are times that, that my wife and I will give each other you know, during during the day on a weekend or something like that, somebody will take the kids um, because we both we both have seen as we're as we're teaching our kids about reading and writing and study time and things like that, we realize how much we need to make that not just forty five minutes or thirty minutes here and there. Like it really has to be to engage in something that you really care about. You need to have two three hours to do it. Two three hours to to be engaging. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you told me that you were an actor, right, or a voice 
voiceover. We talked about this briefly before we started rolling with the camera. Like, how 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 did that come about? Was that taking place in New York? Or? Yeah, that's why I went to New York, and that's why my wife went to New York. Uh, my wife stopped acting very quickly after she went to theater school, but I, I I'm still in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of. You ever seen The Godfather Part Three? Yeah. You know how Al Pacino has that one line. He's like, every time I, how's it go? Every time I, I come out, they pull me back in or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of my relationship to acting. That's your relationship. <laughs> with I've, tri- acting? I've tried to, I've tried to go. You know, every time I kind of try to veer right or left, it kind of pulls you back in. So what what's something that we may have heard you in or seen you or whatever? Uh, you can see me right now. I believe it's still. I believe it's still on. If you go to um, uh, NBC's uh, whatever app they use, uh-huh. New Amsterdam is a hospital show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on its first season, and I'm on the, I believe it's the sixth or the seventh episode. Sixth or seventh episode? Called uh, The Domino Effect. It's about a transplant. Okay. A transplant chain, basically. One person's going to give one organ to the next person who's going to do the same to the next person, so on and so forth. And my daughter uh, needs a transplant in it. So, so you're the dad. The, the you're, dad. you're the passionate dad that that daughter needs a transplant. That's it. Yeah. I'll, how, I'll how how exciting was that? T- tell me about that. Um. So it, it was it was great. It was great. It was a great set. Um. Um. You know, TV and film sets can be this dicey proposition because. Uh, so what you would be used to in a in a in a theater if you've done any kind of theaters the director kind of has this leadership right okay but in tv particularly the stars have leadership gotcha and some of the stars that i've worked with so that that call sheet thing is real that call sheet thing is very real okay very real okay yes number one position is number one position forget the director the anybody else it's the call sheet yes Gotcha. Except in a new show in which no one's been established quite yet as okay. that big, big, big star. So it really has this really, and I think they're just really great guys and 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 actors and actresses in, on that show uh, who are just they're just right down to earth. Yeah. But I've been in other sets that haven't been that. Gotcha. Um, so um, it was very relaxed, which was really nice to work when you. Yeah, relaxed. (laughs) Yeah, I think your job. I think everybody's job becomes a little easier when you you don't feel as stressed or feel like there's such an emphasis with things. I understand even even in some places that you you, there needs to be a sense of urgency. Yeah, and there needs to be a sense of commitment, and everybody needs to kind of like grit and bear and like let's get this this stuff kind of done. But um, that's it's so fascinating because. I don't. I don't know anybody personally that's been on any kind of sets for film or television. So you know, when you when you share that with me, you know, everybody's eyes light up, and you're kind of like, well, how do, how does this go about, or how's that go about? So, yeah. how long was your scene? It was just a you're just an episode or a few minutes. Yeah, it's a yeah. No, it's um, I don't know, five or six scenes. Five or six scenes. Yeah. And how long would that? How long did that take you for the, to film? For film? Uh, it's a week. It's a filming, week. Yeah, yeah, you know, as all of us have heard uh, through, through, 
how I'm dating myself through the DVD commentary. No, no, <laughs> we all we all know. <laughs> no, I, I I I still love DVD commentary, man. I, I pr- appreciate that. I mean, I, I know everything's digital nowadays, yeah. but I still have a very um, confident DVD collection. So. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah what's yeah. the What's the last thing you watched on DVD? Last thing, uh, Fight Club. Yes. Yeah, Fight Club. Fight Club. Yeah. That's so, great features on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a Blu-ray, so I, I watch it on Blu-ray. But yeah, it's a, it's an, it's, it's one of my first Blu-ray movies, and yeah. I just really, really enjoy. If you don't love Fight Club, man, it, yeah. that, that, I think that movie speaks to, it can speak to almost every single one of us. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and Edward Norton does a fantastic job. Oh my goodness, man. So how does how does how does acting how does acting come for you? How'd you kind of get to acting? Or theater. Oh, uh, my mom was kind of an actor. Yeah? So we're from Colombia, and she grew up at a time in which that just wasn't a possibility. Uh-huh. Like, like for really anybody, you know? Like, the, the industry wasn't established there as it is now. Um, being a woman, there was a certain social stigma attached to being an actor or a comedian. But she did do... She did... Um, like a, I don't know if it was an SNL type show. Like I don't think it was particularly skits. It was more kind of storytelling and kind of stand y kind of things. Um, there's no recording of it, so I've never seen it. Uh, but she did about three or four episodes of that. Yeah. Yeah, of a of a, of a thing like that. And uh, so the bugs in the family. The bugs in the family. Yeah, bugs I, definitely in the family. So just like just like with you and with me, I guess. For me, the bugs in the family for speaking. I, I before you came in, I was on the phone with my dad, and uh, we were talking, and my dad wouldn't stop talking. Yeah. So now I'm sitting here, doing a lot of talking and doing a lot of interviewing with people. So um, the bug does travel through, uh, I guess, through generational at some point. Maybe maybe your young children will take on some kind of creative art venture or. <laughs> oh lord yeah there's no doubt there's, so, there's no doubt so we just drove to a wedding uh, in New York okay right? and we're coming back we're coming out of New York we hit 95 we're going through New Jersey we're seeing the you know the, the factory smoke oh yeah distance. yeah yeah coming down 95 uh, yeah. by the airport yep okay and my kids are like what's that smell <laughs> and we say, oh, kids. That's you know, just Jersey. That's just Jersey, kid. <laughs> so fast forward to about two or three days later, um, come down for breakfast. Uh, my two-year-old son is running around the house, as he does. And suddenly he stops by the kitchen, and he asks me for a piece of fruit or something. And he says, what's that smell? And I had, the night before, I think, thrown away some organic matter that was in the garbage. He's, sitting, he's standing right next to the garbage. And I said, what smell? And he goes... It smells like New Jersey. <laughs> like wow, two. Yeah, two years of age. He's well, already that Jersey smell is very distinctive. Too. Yeah, I guess it is traumatizing. I guess it's not. It's not his uh, his dramatic talent. It's more just yeah <laughs> olfactory trauma. <laughs> so you had uh, you had mentioned about uh, your mom being an actor and you getting the bug from that and. Um, it couldn't. I couldn't help but to understand that you're a second generation American now. Yeah. And what's that like been as far as being an actor and going to theater and trying to kind of develop 
you know, this, this, the, the, an, an idea, yeah. an identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a great question to ask because it's it is complicated. Um, I have first of all, I received a lot of opportunities because of it, right? Because I speak Spanish, because I, um, I just the way I look. I also have played uh, Arab American. Mm. I played Greek. I've played Italian. So um, for me in the business, it's been. I know it's helped on some levels. It's a double-edged sword too, though, because it also limits uh, how people see you. Um, so, um, first of all, the opportunity just to represent people from all over the world and to learn—you know, like uh, I know how to—I know how to tie a Sikh turban because <laughs> I played that, <laughs> and I—and it took a lot of hours because that thing is really long. <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen those things, and I—and I'm just like, uh, how do you? It's, there's a certain level of geometry that goes into that thing. Well, the first thing that you have to understand that I didn't figure out for a while is that underneath is very long hair. True. And that long hair is tied to a bun. Right. Which anchors the entire thing. So I was trying to make this thing without an anchor, which uh. is just impossible. So where'd you get your anchor? So I took um, like, a, like a very fitted knit cap uh-huh. and then put a balled up sock in it. Oh, and then tied it off and and sewed it off so that there was this little little ball ingenuity you got to think on your feet <laughs> you got to think on your feet you got to think I on mean, your feet i mean when when there's a an opportunity like you said you're playing a role of of an arabic person and now you have to kind of sell the role and if you don't sell the role properly i think um, people that are authentic in that um, that faith or that idea they want to see a proper representation on film too so it's interesting so this was a play and the playwright was Indian American okay and yeah this was some time ago uh, this was actually a, a playwright by the name of Rajiv Joseph who went on to you know win really huge awards and be on Broadway and be nominated for Pulitzers and Tonys and things it was his first play and I think they just had a hard time at that time, for whatever reason, casting uh, that role. Um, I think now there's a lot more diversity. There's a lot more, I think, casting directors and agents and the whole industry has become much more um, open to the need for representation of people from those areas of the world. I, I, I would agree. I think there needs to be proper representation from those people. There has. It, it has gone, you know, again, this is, you know, 15 years ago. So the the... The business has made those has been very responsible. I think about that. So you so you've been acting for more than fifteen years. Yeah, two. Th- so I graduated co- uh, college in two thousand, and pretty much you know the next year I was in New York, you know, hustling, hustling, making it work. Yeah, by all means necessary. So there's a there's another facet to you besides acting. Yes, you're you're uh, a scholar. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. are. If you think about it, you are. I am. You I guess. Are, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, sure. um, yesterday we sat down and we started talking about um, your thesis. Yes. And what your thesis is. And when you started talking about it, my kind of my mouth just dropped open and my eyes got really wide because it was so fascinating. Because I've never heard of anything, what you're doing. So, please, you know, share, share, start from the top. Start, start with why you chose this direction 
Um, so I, I uh, go to a, a wonderful college and it's located in Vermont, uh, Goddard College, but it's actually familiar. executed. Oh, you are? Familiar. Oh, yeah. awesome. So yeah, so you know, it's executed from wherever you are. It's, uh, it's remote learning. Um, which doesn't mean, I think when people think of remote learning, they think that you're online all day in yeah. classes, and that's not the pedagogy at all. It's actually about you designing your own curriculum, and your advisors are sort of your collaborators in a certain way, and that you're sort of writing these letters back and forth. Um, you really get the idea of being a person of arts and letters. Like, you understand why that letters part is such a classical thing, because... Uh-huh. There's an art to it in and of itself, but it's also the way it shapes um, whatever you're making. So, um, so my degree, uh, it's an MFA in interdisciplinary art, um, which means basically that we break, break the idea of anybody just being a, a playwright or a choreographer or uh, you know, a, what we call plastic arts maker. Um, and you really want to learn through a variety of lenses. Um, whether those be political, anthropological, sociological, if you want to, you know, study maze making. Maze making. I have a, I have one of my, one of my classmates uh, started making mazes. I'm sure there's a niche for it somewhere. Yeah, yeah, and an application for it. And yeah, she, yeah, she actually got commissioned to do a, a public work in uh, in New Hampshire near the airport. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, you know what? That's not a bad idea if you think about it. Wouldn't it be cool, like when you fly over by an airport, to see a maze just to the left or right of you? That this is this was her thought. <laughs> that, that, and and be like people be like, oh, there's a maze there. Like, I'd like to check that I'll out. Check that if, out. If you're if you're just in town and visiting, I mean, people always want to kind of have that that stimulation mentally. That's right. Yeah. And it's such a part of people. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it is. It is such a part of people. So um, it, it actually started from my advisor, Gail Jackson, Dr. Gail Jackson, who's just an incredible storyteller and uh, etymologist and many other things. And she just, you know, she's like, I haven't had an actor as a, as a... The program traditionally had more visual artists okay. and musicians. Uh, performance and theater and, and movies kind of has, has come in kind of later in the history of the program. Um, and so she, she, she mentioned this idea of tricksterism, and we started kind of riffing on it, and what does it mean to be a trickster? And what does it mean to be a trickster? So every, every, pretty much most storytelling cultures on earth have had some sort of trickster form be a significant character in their mythology or their liturgy or whatever, whatever else. Um, you want to call their um, their texts or their oral traditions, and um, when you start to look at them as a whole, they're really fascinating. Um, so whether you are in the you know most people know Loki or Hermes in the European traditions, but then uh, in the Native American, there's Raven and Glooskap. Africa has an Ansi and Legba. Um, you start to see uh, a common pattern of, of an not immoral, but an amoral agent. So, so if you could do me a favor for my listeners, uh, amoral and immoral. So immoral meaning that you, um, you know that there's a morality and you don't care about it or you're, you're, you're um, uh, going against it. Amoral being that you don't have one. Okay. You simply 
exists. You just simply exist for you for the individual yeah the trickster so the trickster traditionally exists for for itself usually himself there are female tricksters but for the most part they tend to be male um so the trickster is always out for himself trying to either feed his belly uh fill his pocket uh fill his sexual appetite (laughs) whatever that kind of base uh animal uh need is but in the stories, they end up doing much more than that. So either by accident or through them acquiring some kind of moral sense through the story, they uh, something happens that is much greater than them and ends up kind of reshaping the world. Reshaping the world, huh? Yeah. So, all right, as I'm sitting here, what is, what is your favorite trickster throughout all these stories that we have? That one that I, I, w- I would say that resonates where you see that has made the most change or the, the most, um, you know, impact on how we are doing things now or doing things in general. On me? No, no. I, it doesn't have to be specifically you, but just one that throughout your studies that have impacted you or still sticks with you. Now, I define the thing, uh, the, the idea of trickster, not just in that sort of mythological, um, for lack of a better word, ancient definition, I see kind of everybody as a trickster. Yeah. I see the United States is a great trickster. Okay. <laughs> Our president is a trickster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, every television show or artistic uh, star that you kind of enjoy, you enjoy their trick, right? Yeah. You enjoy the meanings that, that, that kind of slip off of that trick, but you enjoy the trick. Um, it's why you know Disney is an, is one of the most incredible tricksters of all time. You know I have huge problems with the way that trick has been performed, but but I I can't help but acknowledge the trick of Disney being a, an incredible elaborate structure. All right, um, but are you t- speaking of? Still in that ancient mythological way, like yeah, which one of those figures? Yeah, which one of those figures? Uh, um. Just stand out that have a particular story that makes what your your thesis and the things that you're doing pop, if you will. Um, I would say that on some level, Raven. In the and Raven was the uh, the American. He's he's found in many Native American uh, stories, uh, particularly in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. And in Alaska. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is is the structure of those stories is not what we are used to. They don't have a a big character development and a big climax and a big result. They kind of just happen. Some some of the tricks are just Raven really wants uh, he really wants to uh, hunt. Yeah. But the wind is too strong, and so he goes to his mom and he says, "Mom." The wind's too strong. I can't hunt. My arrow keeps keeps slipping. He's like, well, you got to go talk to the windmaker. So he travels all the way up to the windmaker. And the windmaker is up on a hill. It's a big, giant eagle. Just pumping, pumping, pumping its wings and creating this, this wind. That as, as Raven gets closer to it, it becomes harder and harder to get to the source. And, and Raven's feathers kind of fly off of him. And he has to trick the eagle into saying, you know, I think you could make better wind if you went up on this other mountain. Ah. And as they're walking to the other mountain, he pushes him down this hole. 
and he gets rid of wind. And then he comes back all excited saying, Mom, 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 I'm going to hunt, I'm going to hunt, I'm going to hunt. But there are no birds to hunt because he's gotten rid of wind. So there's no wind to carry the birds so that he can hunt. That's right. So he has to go back and <laughs> resurrect the eagle that makes wind. Right? Wow. But resurrection, right? So there's there's the regeneration. Redemption. Yeah, redemption and regeneration. And it's Christian and it's in every, right? In this simple story, there's all these meanings about what we have the power and agency to do, what we want to do for ourselves versus the greater world, why we do things then have to kind of undo them. Right. Or redo them in certain ways. So was Raven uh, amoral or immoral? Um... Yeah, I think he's amoral at the time. You think time. he's amoral? Yeah. I, I, I feel like he kind of, just through briefly through the story, that he became a little bit of both. He becomes, yeah. I think at the end, he becomes a bit, you know, there, 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 there's, a, there's a character development there. Yeah, yeah there, I mean, it, it, there's a small character development, but there's a character development there. But uh, I, I asked this just because you were going on, you were telling us about your thesis, and... Um, what you kind of think that it is that we are. You said America is a trickster, Disney's a trickster. Um, so when you are putting together your thesis, what was the like the main general body of the idea behind it? That I'm a trickster. That you're a trickster. Yeah, that as an actor, that's basically what you're doing, right? You're you're shape shifting, right? Which is a, a classical um, trickster attribute. The ability to, to change your appearance or your sound in order to feed yourself, in order to, you know, keep your career going, in order to, you know, that's what an actor does. You're, yeah. you're basically just... <laughs> Some people would like to call that as manipulation. Some people would. And part of my problem was that I was too moral about that. So, um, so what I mean by that is... Uh, the people who can really do that well are really clear that that's what they're doing. So the the best tricksters are are based- St- stand-up comedians uh, who are really they, they they do have an amoral bent to them, right? Uh-huh. Which is which is that I'm going to say anything in front of this mic that I think gets me to an idea. Okay. Regardless of the social mores, because that's, that is my role. The, the role is that I'm moving the line, I'm pushing the line, the social line, in order for you to see it. In order for you to realize how much, how many, how these lines of order are kind of ridiculous or arbitrary or no longer function, no longer serve us. So let's take the, let's take the world of uh, comedians as a, as a trickster. Because I think, I, I want to say that most people can identify that comedians are trickster just solely because they laugh and, they have no social bounds when they're on that stage. They can talk about literally anything and everything, and nobody takes them seriously or at their word. Is that them being the best trickster that they can be, or is that them pushing those social boundaries that we want, that you uh, just talked about? Uh, I think everything's gotten complicated in this internet age, right? Okay. Uh, Particularly because I've heard from some stand-up friends that now there is a morality and an amorality and an immorality within stand-up comedians. 
So they've always kind of pilfered jokes from one another. Right. And reshaped them. Yes. You know, sort of tricksterized them. But now it's gotten really bad because, because of the internet. Right? And because things are put in text and you can really, you know, you, you, you can create your own stand-up. <laughs> yeah, you can create your own stand-up. And, by, by Frankensteining, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, splitting two jokes together. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can just put it on, you know, yeah. Instagram or, or Twitter th- or Facebook that's or right. whatever. And, and 15 years ago, it was fine within stand-up comedians that you would do that. But because you were there, you were every night, you were doing that hustle, you were getting up on that mic, you were hearing other stand-up comedians, you were part of this grind and this part of this this hazing, this fraternal thing that happened. And so you could fight it out in that arena. Now it's become... Like everything else, right? It's become really complicated with with you know the general world and the general noise of the world. General noise of the world. We always, well, I think we always get caught up in our uh, in our phones and the things that our phones provide for us throughout our days. And I was I was, I was saying to uh, my buddy that called me the other day, and I was like, dude, you remember when? You know, we didn't have cell phones when it was so hard. It wasn't hard. It was never hard to get in touch with you because I kind of knew your schedule. But now it's twice as hard to get in touch with you because I don't know where your where your what your schedule is. You know, Monday through Friday, eight to eight to five, you were you know you were working or you're working from this time, and then you'd be home. And if you weren't home, you're with your friends, and you were at somebody's house that had a phone. So yeah. it was always easy. There's a way to maintain that that constant connection. But now. I feel like people are more um, amoral with a lot of these, with our phones and a lot of the relationships creating a more of a, if you will, a trickster mentality with certain things. Well, everything's a moving part. Right. And the more moving parts you have, the, the, the harder it is to sort of thread the needle, right? If somebody's, you know, keeps moving the needle, it just becomes really, really difficult. And I, I think we're all doing it. Yeah, we're all sort of in this, this is another trickster um, if anybody's interested from an academic point of view about this stuff, Lewis Hyde has a great book called uh, Trickster Makes This World, which is just a phenomenal, phenomenal um, academic work. Um, but he talks about contingency, that the trickster operates from a point of contingency, a point of essentially improv- improvising uh, whatever he might need as he's going on in his journey. And I feel like we're all on that on that thing where we're all sort of improvising. You know, I think nine to five. You know, what was the the word of the year? I think two or three years ago was gig, hmm. right? Because the, the 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 gig culture of particularly those of us in the arts, you know, all right, who we no longer just do that temp thing or that restaurant thing. Now we're kind of patching our life together from like a variety of doing different different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think because of the economy, people, non-artists have had to do that too. Yeah, right. You have the dog walking, and you have the babysitting, and you have the landscaping, and you have the thing. You know, I know a lot of people kind of patchwork their life that way. Yeah. Um, and so that just creates a lot of moving parts. So those moving parts, I think, with the phone moving parts of email and text and 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 done. Yeah, it creates some chaos. I was, I, I, uh, I got goosebumps right now. I was thinking about that. You know, when I graduated high school, um, and you go off and you go to school and you go to college, there was, it was a, it was a transition. It was a smooth transition. 
you had just mentioned that now people are picking up other gigs, other side jobs to um, maintain an income or maintain a lifestyle that they want to ultimately um, have. But it does, we do have to, we do have some sort of uh, improvisation with that because now it's not the same anymore. With our phones, there's so many different things in so many places and people we want to see and be a part of. But we can't if we don't aren't financially in a place or we don't have an idea of something that's bigger than ourselves. We can stay home and be by the phone and be ready to accept any invite that comes our way. Or we can get out and go see the world that is on the screen in our pocket. So it makes for a very, um, I would say, conflicting ideas and ideals especially for me as a as a person that has seen this development yeah and kind of understands what that development is yeah. and what it you know, we, we talked at, at, at length after our, our uh, initial um, conversation about um, how I feel bad or feel I don't know how these young people are going to navigate with their phones and the things that they're doing in their lives I, I think you're going to see more and more young women become tricksters as well um, because of the lives that people are living now. And they're, they're, they're trying to not just be in it for themselves, but in it for things that, you know, they believe in and their values and things of that nature. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to, again, this question of amorality or immorality or morality. Yeah. Right. With 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 this thing, because it's, you know, like, like, what are the rules of a text or of an email? Like, just let's just start with that. Right. Do you do you use formality? Do you not? Do you seem do you leave your typos so that you don't. So you seem human. So you seem human and you seem like you're doing the thing. You're not trying too hard. You are, you know, they're all trick. Yeah. <laughs> right. They're all appearance based. They're all perspective based. And so. um we sort of can't get away from it. Um, I think, I think people, I, I, you know, the internet has some amazing things, you know? Yes, like, they do. <laughs> it just, yes, they it, do. It's just some, there's some incredible, incredible things. And I've learned how to do all of this on the internet. That's right. Yeah. Talk about just learning, learning itself. Yeah. You know, for a lot of us, particularly those of us that were raised on TV and film, um, we just learn better that way. Yeah. You know? And it is a. It can be wonderful to be able to stop and rewind and be like, "Oh, what's that thing?" You know, building furniture and actually being able to see the angles of something and be like, "Oh, that's how that slot goes into that piece right. of wood." Like, awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Not. I don't need seventy-two technical writing <laughs> things that came with the instruction and the piece of paper to tell me that. You know. Right. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's you know the double-edged sword of tricksterism is that it all. It's always doing that. It's always kind of. So you had you had mentioned that tricksters kind of push the boundaries of um, social norms. Yeah, of of meaning and order. Meaning and order to create new meaning and order. So uh, what what's an example of that? Um, boy, um, meaning and order, lines of lines of value. I, you had said that to me um, when our in our consultation, and I and I yeah. was thinking about. It. I was like, lines in order. You know, one of one of the things that you had mentioned was like we had talked briefly was about marriage, the lines in order of, of those things, and 
how society has changed, how marriage was originally instituted for us and what marriage is now. And I don't know if it was a trickster or just progression that is ultimately have changed the, the way that marriage was structured originally to what it is now, but it's, 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 it's upon us now. And I don't know if that's an, a proper example, but... Well, I paused just because there's so many... <laughs> like, 75 things came to my head at once. And I was okay. like, what do I talk about? Um, I, you know, one of the first things that you think about when you think about tricksterism is that it's, it, it's tied to power. And power is tied to me, from a mythological point of view, is the gods, right? Right. So the idea of one god or the idea of a pantheon of gods. And you bring up marriage, and I think um, we talked about marriage traditionally being a, a union of families right. for their survival, right? Right. Of, of um, either possessions or land or a safety net or, uh, or community building, right? Right. As opposed to an idea of, of, of quote-unquote love, right. right? Which is a kind of, you know... A construct. Yeah, it's kind of a construct. And, and, and it's a very convenient construct in certain narratives, in certain yeah. patriarchal na- narratives, right? Right, it's needed. It's it, it's it's enticing to a, for a young person. It is. <laughs> it really, you can really okay. shape and you, you, know, you see it through our commercials, you see it through our, our TV and film, right? Yeah, the industry loves to sell us love. Totally, and sell us dating and sell us, you know, all these things. And, and uh, you know, I'm not here to say that there is a truth, you know, that, that, that arranged marriage is better than, 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 than Tinder. I'm no, not saying that. No, but, no, I, I agree with you. But, but, but you. that it's a thing, right? That we right. should evaluate all things as, as, um, as functions that serve their time and place. And I think a lot of the things that are going on now serve the power structure, which is the internet, which is the content world, which is, um, you know, I agree. I think um, the internet has um, been able to magnify trickster or trickster, tricksterisms and and it, it does make the world and I think it does push a lot of the boundaries that we see now. Um, and it pushes people to places where they do things that are now hard to understand why you actually did these things or why this is what it is and now we start to see that 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 line in the sand get pushed further and further back yes like there's okay somebody did this x y and z and 10 years ago that was blasphemy yeah and now it's a social norm it's socially accepted sure so how you know as we go with this how far does the line and the the sand in the line go and it 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 doesn't seem like it's ever going to it's going to look it looks for me it reminds me it looks like the horizon now it's just it doesn't matter how far you walk towards the horizon it's never going away yeah it's yeah, and I think that's that's what a lot of the anxiety that's driving so many people is about is that you know we want we want as humans a rhythm and a and an order and a line that we can you know as we go into the deep end of the pool we want to be able to hold on to something yeah <laughs> right yeah 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 and I think a lot of people feel like that thing is going away you know yeah but but I, I do think that that's that's the price of freedom right. The price of not having that structure. 
I mean, yeah, and that freedom again is also a trick. Like just the idea of freedom is a trick, right? Yeah. I'm like, what is freedom to you know? For, for your parents to be in the middle of Georgia for five months, I think to them that would be an idea of freedom, right? It is. To me, that would scare the <laughs> pants out of me to, to, <laughs> to, to make that kind of commitment to, to being uh, out in the woods you know, for that long a time, right? And so that freedom is literally, you know, we talk about at Goddard when we start to write uh, poetry. If you, there's a, there's a, a beautiful text, uh, The Life of Poetry by Muriel Rockheiser. And she talks about that the, the beauty of poetry is the freedom to choose your tradition, right? So it doesn't mean to choose whatever. It's that you choose a tradition, something that has worked for somebody for some reason at some time, and that you are free to engage with that, right? So a poem is free to engage its own structure, to, to, to create its own structure, that the content of that poem um, and the way that poem functions are the two sides of what make a poem a poem or what make any work of art or any thing a thing so so you, you this is this is great um, we choose tradition and poetry poetry doesn't have a tradition if, if you will it has a structure but it doesn't have a tradition uh, I mean Sure it does. Sure it does. I mean, th there are schools of. I mean, you know. Yeah. B by a poet being a poet, they make a tradition, right? Right. I mean, Walt Whitman is a tradition. Okay. Langston Hughes is a tradition. Okay. A haiku is a tradition. Okay. You know, there are certain okay. forms that have become much more hard. You know, like a, a, a Shakespearean sonnet is a very rigid tradition. It, it has certain things that it must have okay. for it to be identified. You know, a Sylvia Plath poem. You could maybe say, I don't know how to structurally uh, uh, define it traditionally. I know thematically how to define it. Yeah. Yeah. So then maybe I'm thinking of the words that we put in our, po our poetry. To, to, does, that, does that create the structure? Does that create the tradition? Um, the words, yeah, of course, sure, yeah. But they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're two sides of the same coin, right? I mean... Um, you know, uh, does does a does a does a Drake song have thing words that make it a Drake song? Sure. That if certain words were used, you'd know that is not a Drake song. Right. Yeah. I. I, I, I all right. I, it's it's hard for me to argue that. It's definitely. I could definitely see the validity in all of that in what you're saying, and it just. It, it really makes me really understand tricksterism a little bit better. Um, you also had said something too when we talked the other day. It was called active mercy, and I was kind of curious what that meant within tricksterism. Yeah, so I was in a I was in a play. Oh boy, some thirteen years ago. It's an incredible playwright uh, by the name of Michael John Garces. Um, kind of a mentor to me and uh, he wrote this play called Acts of Mercy it was the first time I ever was ever uh, um, exposed to this concept so it's a part of the Catholic catechism and it's these 14 things seven corporal seven spiritual things that a good Catholic is supposed to do uh, clothe the homeless uh, visit prisoners uh, advise the, uh, the, the the afflicted or the confused um, 
uh, bury the dead, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Gotcha. Um, and he structures them in his play, and then I started thinking about them. Um, my father had passed away right before I started um, grad school, and I just started thinking about him and uh, and my relationship to him and who I was and this whole idea of tricksterism. And I decided in my thesis to take this structure and kind of repurpose it, so tricksterize it, as it were. Yeah. So where the the Catholic acts of mercy are directed toward this kind of imagined poor, you know. These, uh-huh. Less than. This less than, yes. This idea of less than, which is, I think, such a such an interesting and yeah, yeah, and I, betraying sort of idea. Yes. So I was starting to think, well, what is less than? Well, what if I'm less than? What if I'm more than and I am less than? Right. And if I create, if I'm both sides of the 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 the, the parishioner and the um, priest. Yeah. So yeah yeah, 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 I guess. Yeah. yeah. Then then what comes out of that? What if I give myself mercy? What if I truly give myself a, a liturgy and a structure for my own mercy? And what would that what would be comprised of? So it, it became my artistic practices and it became my academic practices while at Goddard and my art and my Yeah. Yeah, personal artistic and academic practices. And so I've structured my whole thesis with these acts of mercy in, in the hopes of you know, if I'm ever going to be the kind of person that I think I want to be in terms of being a more merciful person to the greater world, it kind of starts with you. And the idea of that comes from parenthood. Okay. That as I saw myself interacting with my kids and and kind of being very, you know, I should do X, Y, and Z, and then either being able to do some of those things and failing at doing some of those things, well, why was that, you know? And I started thinking about my own, the way I was raised and the way my wife was raised. And you can't help but go into kind of this Greek uh, fate, free will um, discourse with yourself when you have children, right? What are you, what do you have the power to change? What are you? Um, and, and how do you go about that whole thing? You know, cycles of certain behavior. So, can you give me uh, an example of uh, these uh, acts of mercy that you're, you, you know, you said that you're you're trying to um, do with your children? Yeah. So, for example, um, my father was a professor. Okay. And my mom, even though she wasn't a professor or a teacher, she could be quite pedantic, and I can be quite pedantic, um, and sometimes very kind of. Um, Effusive in the way I can be pedantic and and I could see my kids pulling back like I pulled back from my father sometimes because it was sometimes just a little too the teaching was just a little too on the nose a little too intense a little yeah. too not developmentally appropriate right, right. <laughs> like you can't teach a two year old or you teach a five year old or you teach a ten year old or you teach an adult right and so for me it's uh, been about oh I was taught in this kind of one size fits all how do I not do that? Yeah. At the same time, giving value to the tradition of teaching, you right. know, and to and to who I am, because I, I I do think I have a teaching bug as well as well as an acting bug. Um, but how do I just do it better? You know, yeah. how do we how do you let the student come to the lesson <laughs> as opposed to you know bludgeoning them with it? Right. I we think about um, our parenting skills and we think of it as a. Uh, 
as something that has been handed down traditionally. And maybe we need to look at that in a more um, obstructed way, in more of a, a way that isn't uh, so foundationally traditional, but maybe like maybe differently altogether. But here's the trip of it. Okay. When you stop to ask your parents how they did something, you know what the answer is? I did it with love. <laughs> Not if they're being honest. I mean, yeah, they might do that. And that's probably a good, really good advice. But that's not what we got. Yeah. I don't remember. No. Okay. Because that's, that's the cute, talk about a trick about being a parent, is that your kid is never the same. Like having an adult child, like you're still, as you were saying about your dad, right? Yeah, my- He still sees you as his little boy. I'm sure he does. And to be honest with you, I probably don't want to be seen any other way by my parents. And way. you're this little boy. Yes, I'm a grown man. So if you had kids and you asked your dad, Dad, how do I X with my two-year-old? He'd, be, he'd give you some answer because he feels he has to answer you. Yeah. But if you really push him and you, you really ask him in his hearts of heart, how did you do, do X, Y, or Z? He probably doesn't remember. He probably doesn't remember. Because that's so many versions of James ago. Ah. You're on version, you know, he's on version 146.Z. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I, 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 I can't argue that. I, I, I see, I understand that. And um, even now, I call my, my parents all the time for advice or direction or, or you know, emotionally, mentally, all that stuff. Because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a blanket of mine. Regardless of how we, how the the lines were with parenting, yeah. or these acts of mercies with them, yeah. it, uh, I I think that's one of the reasons why we go through life with our parents. Where we're like, I can't wait to get away from you guys. I don't like you guys. Like I'm not coming back here as often. And then you leave and you go away and you realize, like, man, that was my base. That was my strength. That was everything I needed. And you kind of forget all the things. Well, you don't kind of, you don't forget, but those things that were, that had plagued you and the reasons why you wanted to get away from all of that is the same reasons why you want to go home all the time. And the same reasons why you call wherever they're living home. Yes. And, so- it, and, I, and I feel like, I feel like I've been duped. I feel like I've been tricked. Well, that's another function of a trickster is the mediating. The mediating of the translating principle that things don't exist by you being there or by you being here. Things exist in the in-between. It is the missing, or it is the process of you figuring out what your parents are to you as an adult, right? Yeah. That creates a, a, a new meaning and a significant source of what, whatever significance your parents continue, because obviously your parents continue to have a significant source of meaning for and, you. And I, and, I, and I would think that my parents will always have a significant um, meaning force for me and I and I really hope that people are fortunate enough to have that as well yes. with, with their parents because once your parents start to see you as an adult they see you as they don't see you as like a child all the time granted you're going to be their child forever yeah. but they see you as an adult that's somebody that contributes and I remember that light kind of switching with me and my parents and at some point, I, I would say about about eight years ago, nine years ago, when I when I moved out and I was 
thinking about all that. And my mother, um, she naturally, like I would think most mothers would feel when, when their child is leaving the, the nest, if you will. Yeah. And they don't want you to go, but they understand it's time to go. And they want to come, they want to be a part of your life every day still, but you kind of don't want them to because you're trying to figure out who this person is, who this individual is. And over time and over all this period of time, what at least for me, is that I've developed a better fonding um, relationship with my parents because they gave me that room to grow or room to become an adult, become an individual, if you will. Yeah. And you, I tended like let to let all that whatever the parenting skills were from like the ages that I can remember from like five to like nineteen or whatever. I kind I tend to let those all kind of go by the wayside and you know. You, we sit here and we say, oh, you know, that's why my dad did that when I was this age. Oh, that's why my mom did that when I was this age. And you and you want in turn to turn around and be able to provide that for your child as well. Yeah. Or, yeah, and then the hubris that you think you can do it better. Or, yes. You know? Right. Or, or you know. You can add a flair that wasn't there before. So, in my studies, there's a, oh, I always mess up his name. I think it's Donald Winnicott. And he's a uh, one of the he's a British child development uh, um, psychologists, and he has this idea called the good enough parent, which means almost like a doctor's, you know, oath is do no harm. Right. That's your job, not to improve on anything that happened to you, not to be the perfect anything, not to be you know, just to be good enough <laughs> to let your child be who they are and then to slowly kind of shape them towards some idea of society some idea of order some idea of self-discipline but not to get too bent out of shape if it doesn't happen at any one moment that you need to perceive right in front of you that you trust that it'll happen if you're just kind of constantly there you know yeah show up Show up, which is what we were talking about. Yeah, uh, physically showing up, particularly in this day and age with the internet, um, in all of our things, it's just like you can define your life a little bit more by wh- where's your body in space? Is your body in space in the yard, doing the yard work? Is it at the at the Durham Bulls game? Yeah. Is it you know like those things? I think are looking at what our body's doing. From a day-to-day point of view, is a much more healthy way than 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 the wonderful but sometimes really tricky trips that we take on our devices um, that don't give us a sense of what our body's been through. What our body, where our body is too. Yeah. Wow, that's great. That is great. Um, so as we about to wrap this up, because we've only, we've been here almost an hour. Um, so I wanted to. I asked you at this before we had started recording. Like, is this your life's calling? And you, you, you pause and you were like, "That's a great question," but what, 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 you, you didn't have a real solid answer for me. Yeah, because because yeah, part of discovering this trickster idea is that it is kind of everywhere, and it is like we said, it's hard to define a thing and define order once you've sort of uncovered yourself as a trickster and uncovered the world around you as a trickster I think it's a longer throw to to find um, to find anchors now 
you know, I've, I have this master's, the terminal degree as an actor uh, is the master's degree, and I would love to teach, and um, I think I have some pretty good ideas about how to, how to do that. Um, but obviously, you know, uh, uh, departments, are, you know, are, are, are their own thing, you know, and you don't know when those jobs become available, and I don't want to just go to, I don't know, the middle of, 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 of Colorado and uproot my family to do that, you know, I would, right. I would like to stay here, you know, and my relationship to New York City as well. So I continue to be an actor. I'm writing more than I ever have in my life. So I have a screenplay and I have a uh, theater play as well as an idea for a movie. Um, all of these things are kind of on early development just because of school. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of itching to get back to and actually draft these these works. Um, yeah, it's taken me here, and I'm very excited to be here, but I, I'm not so quick to define it right away. I know that... And that's fine. I know that I, I, I you know, my Spanish speaking is a, is something that I think continues. My, my English and Spanish speaking, so yeah, sort of that mediating and that translating trickster thing seems to be uh, something that takes me places, and so I'm listening to that. Um... So, so is this? So is your? So is this your superpower? Is this the, the, your ability to teach? Your ability to? I think my ability to be international and American. Yeah. At the same time, I think there's something about that, because I've always felt both not quite, not quite completely assimilated American. Mm-hmm. Even though I love America and I, you know, and I, I'm, I'm in awe of this country. I just think it's an incredible complicated place right um and that's how i feel about the world you know agreed <laughs> the, the world is a is a terrifying amazing place yes agreed uh colombia is a terrifying wonderful place and so i'm always doing that mediating i feel like i'm always and maybe you know i'm a, I'm a kid of divorce a lot of actors yeah you'll see a lot of actors are kids of divorce i uh i think i, I think the same way about harvard is like it's a terrifying, beautiful place. Yeah. And any, I always want people. I want to tell people all about it. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't want to give them any false, right? False ideas about totally. what it actually is. You want to be, because it, it can be a bear and it can be a beast. And there's a there, there's a point with my father could have gone one way or another way, and I may not be here because of that. Yes, right. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a very um, very like understanding line about being terrified and loving something all in the same breath and how beautiful and powerful it is i think that's that's what artists are always doing i think artists are are revealing the tricks of how they came to be <laughs> in yeah. this moment in time through looking at their ancestry and looking at what happened to them and looking to their to their perspective of the world they're always looking at by what miracles you came to just exist <laughs> yeah yeah well I, I i think i thought about that too i think about that every time that i'm sitting here and i have a guest in front of me like what was the journey that brought us all the way to this point where we're sitting here now yeah. having a conversation yeah it's 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 an it's an amazing it's a beautiful thing and it's always been the uh, uh an inspiration for me to continue to have this show 
Yeah. So, Andre, so I'm going to wrap this up. I really appreciate you being here. I really thank you. I appreciate your energy. Your energy is so good. It's so great. It's so infectious. You too, man. This has been awesome. <laughs> this has been a it's, real it's, treat. Andres, you got anything that uh, where people can find you or you want to push or promote or anything? You know, um, I, I will have a website uh, okay. coming up. Um, yeah. 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 We'll, we'll, we can push that. Push and, it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And make it all happen. Awesome. Again, thank you. Awesome. I want to thank Andres for coming by today and uh, sharing uh, his unique perspective on tricksterism. Uh, Andres has many talents, not only being uh, smart and astute, but he uh, is an actor as well. Um, I will place uh, Andres's information in the description. And while you're there, if you guys could uh, submit a review and... Uh, have five stars for me that'd be great you'll be helping out the show you'll be helping out me you'll be helping out the message that i'm trying to convey to the world so as you guys continue to walk through your day make sure you hug the ones that you love and remember always focus for you